When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything I need Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Plans by the Joe Joyce Band. This talented acoustic pop group from Malaria is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So stick around with us to the end of the podcast so we can tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, say Joe Joyce Band. Joe Joyce Band. Oh, our listeners have no idea. You just did it 15 times. That's right. So you can get it out of your mouth. <laughs> yep. Hey. Joe Joyce Band. Joe Joyce Band. <laughs> Work on that. Don't do that three times in a row. Steve, have you ever been to the Barberton Speedway? Never have. I've heard it from Grandma and Grandpa's house. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that house, I grew up there. It was miles from the Barberton Speedway, completely on the opposite side of town. But on warm summer nights, the sound of those racing cars would carry on the wind all the way to my house and right through the screen of my open bedroom window. And though it never motivated me to want to go... I could feel this sense of adventure, you know, lying in bed and thinking of this exciting event going on, thousands of fans, fast cars, the speed and danger. The drone of those engines lulled me to sleep every time. I've never been a big fan. I, you know, just go real fast. I'm going to turn to the left sometimes, you know. I'm going to go real in a circle, you know. (laughs) I just, I never was, I, I could not just sit there and watch something go around and around unless it's, you know, like horse racing or something. I agree. You know, even though I love the sounds of it, I guess actually seeing it in person was monotonous. I did go to a race at Mid-Ohio years ago, and my eyes glazed over. But, you know, I get it. I enjoy watching golf, and that's hardly riveting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you do love your horse races. I do love horse racing. It's just, you know, I don't even have to go to bat. I just love watching the horse racing. Maybe those animals make a difference. They are beautiful. As you know, we've been doing stories under the label of mob mentality, Because it's an absolute mystery as to how people who can be reasoned with as individuals can become an uncontrollable mob when they feed off each other's energy. And tonight, we've got a great example of just how bizarre this behavior can get. 
try to get your head around this. What began as a dispute over $250 in racing prize money evolved into drivers leading the crowd into an insurrection that leveled the racetrack. We're talking grandstands, judges' platform, ticket booths, turning it all into one giant bonfire using gasoline siphoned from their own cars. Wow, is this like 50 Cent Bear Night? This sounds like a crowd that I just had too much bear. (laughs) Whatever the fuel that set this mob off. It happened in 1931 at the New Bremen Speedway. That was a half-mile dirt track that used to attract thousands of race car lovers every summer weekend until it closed in 1979. The New Bremen Speedway Oval was located in the village of New Bremen, which has a population of fewer than 3,000 today. That's in Auglaize County in western Ohio, right at the summit of the Miami and Erie Canal. I found some drone footage of the village, and it looks really charming and picturesque. The racetrack opened in 1926 as a special attraction for the annual Farmer's Picnic. That was a big community gathering held each August. The track was built into a working cornfield. They sacrificed just enough of the crop to create a path for six racing cars and a grandstand. That first year, spectators couldn't even see the race cars when they were on the backstretch because the late summer corn was too tall. The picnic that year drew about 10,000 people, many of whom attended the race, featuring drivers from Dayton and Indianapolis. It was such a big hit. A larger, permanent grandstand was built, along with the judges' platform and ticket booths, and the racetrack surface was improved in time to host races throughout the summer of 1927. Now, New Bremen townsfolk couldn't have been more excited. They really embraced their claim to fame. Robert Schroeder, a son of one of the original owners, once described how on race day, residents would fill their porches along Washington, Maine, and Monroe streets as a bumper-to-bumper stream of autos with out-of-town license plates paraded to and from the speedway. Everyone really wanted the attraction to succeed. Schroeder said, When rain made the dirt track too muddy for racing, the call would go out at dawn, and citizens would turn out en masse with their cars, circling and circling the track hour after hour to drive it dry. No one turned in a bill. Even though the Speedway managed to survive until 1979, it could have all ended long before that. Because when it was just five years old, It ceased to exist one crazy September night. It was there one moment, and the next reduced to rubble and ashes. It happened the afternoon of September 20th, 1931, the very last racing program of the season. I could tell people were gearing up for this big event. When I searched Ohio newspaper archives, papers all over that region were lit up with stories and ads about the season finale. The event promised to have one of the largest fields yet and a prize purse that hoped to motivate drivers to break some records. There would be four events, a 5, 7, and 10-mile race, and then the top three from each of those races would compete in a final 20-mile race. Prizes totaling $1,200 were at stake. That's about $23,000 in today's money. 
with a lion's share going to that final face-off. There would even be a special prize if any track records were broken. As predicted, the Sunday crowd turned out, though news reports were wildly different in their estimations, from 4,000 to 10,000 people. Since the grandstand held closer to 4,000, we'll go with that. The first three races went off without a hitch, and the nine men who placed in them and qualified for the grand finale drove their cars into position at 4 p.m. Competing for that grand prize would be Howdy Wilcox, Bob Carey, Bill Chittam, Al Miller, Gene Morgan, Henry Meyer, Clay Corbett, A.C. Nicer, and Gail Lankert. But before the starting gun sounded, there was a dispute. The drivers and the track operators were disagreeing on the size of the purse. Newspapers reported this dispute differently. Some wrote stories that tilted toward the track officials. They said the prize money for that 20-mile race was promoted as being $550 and that the drivers suddenly became unsatisfied with this. These stories said the drivers left their cars, went to the judge's platform where officials were gathered, and demanded the purse be raised to $800. The management pointed out that all the racers had signed entry forms agreeing to the $550 prize, and they refused to raise it. Other newspapers painted a different story sympathetic to the drivers. Those reports said track officials had reneged on the prize, and had assembled the drivers, who had been sitting in their cars in just moments from starting the race, to tell them the purse was being reduced. Those who reported this version said the drivers climbed from their machines and swarmed up the steps to the judge's platform to complain. Yet a third version said the purse was indeed stipulated to be $550, but that previous 20-mile dashes always paid out $800. At the last minute, drivers balked at this change and demanded to be paid what previous events had paid. In all cases, the difference amounted to $250, and the two sides argued relentlessly on this point for an hour and a half. John Vance of Dayton, who owned several racing cars, offered to make up the deficit from his own pocket, but the drivers refused to let him do so. A few minutes before 6 p.m., some of the drivers had given up. They'd returned to their cars and started driving them from the grounds, signaling all hope of settlement had been abandoned. It appeared the big year-end race everyone had been sitting in the sun for hours waiting to see was off. Now, the crowd wasn't sure what was going on all this time. They could see the drivers and officials talking, maybe even gesturing angrily. But the point of trouble wasn't obvious. They grew impatient and started hooting and hollering for the race to begin. When some drivers started removing their cars from the track, the fans started demanding their money back, especially if the race wasn't going to get underway. Tension was coming to a head. And it was a strange little mistake that broke it all wide open. You see, one official had been attempting to calm the crowd by making announcements, but he forgot to shut off the loudspeaker between his addresses to the crowd. His mic picked up an exchange that was carried out to the entire grandstand, 
It was the voice of a race driver telling officials, you had better put up the money or there'll be trouble. And trouble there was. As if those words were some kind of signal, dozens, maybe hundreds of men in the grandstands started tearing it up, boards and benches, tossing them over the heads of spectators to the track below. Seat cushions went flying, pop bottles flew through the air, guardrails were next, ripped up and tossed into the growing pile of debris. The loudspeaker, which just minutes before had asked drivers wishing to race under the agreed conditions to line up with their cars, was ripped from its fastenings. After thrown bottles had injured a man and a boy, people started running to the exit gates in a near panic to get away from the growing danger. But hundreds stayed, and they surged toward the judge's stand. Reporters said the number was so intimidating, 300 at least, that the squad of eight private police hired for the event didn't even attempt to halt the oncoming rioters. There was no point. The mob reached the stairway that led to the judge's platform and began to tear it down. Officials and even the race car drivers who hadn't yet returned to their cars had to jump to the ground or climb down supports as the entire platform was upended by the rioters. In the midst of all of this, the race promoter, Leo Henke, fled the track, taking the day's receipts before someone came after the money. Members of the racing board, Louis Hinkey, brother of the promoter, William Martz, Dr. Leonard Schmidt, and Harry Schroeder, fled as well, fearing the mob might target them next. The debris from the partially demolished grandstand, the overturned judges' stand, and the ravaged ticket booths were set on fire. Some individuals drained gasoline from automobiles and poured it over the wood. An angry fan struck a match, and it all went up. As the sun set, flames kept the night bright until they had done their work. Firefighters, of course, were called to the scene, but the venue was beyond help. Chemical fire equipment proved futile in combating the fire, and they were forced to stand idly by, waiting for the conflagration to end. Auglaize County Sheriff Haver Russell and his deputies also arrived to back up the private security force, but by then the damage was done. They did, however, manage to save an adjoining dance hall. When the mob turned its attention and their torches to that building, the sheriff threatened to use tear gas bombs on the crowd, a move that worked and scattered the remaining vandals. A couple of weeks ago, on the 90th anniversary of the Speedway Riot, the New Bremen Historical Society posted on its Facebook page a personal account of the incident that had been shared by Robert Schroeder in 1994. He died three years after this interview, but he was 13 years old when the riot happened and remembered it well. Robert was the son of Harry Schroeder, one of the Speedway owners and board members who feared for his life that night. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. 
Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Robert recalled the role the race car drivers played in the disturbance. In the midst of the dispute with track operators, the drivers broke away, huddled together, then scurried into the grandstand, strategically spacing themselves apart to cover the distance. Then the drivers initiated a cheer that the crowd picked up. Start the race! Start the race! Robert said he witnessed the first pop bottle thrown. He was seated in a front row box seat reserved for his dad when suddenly about seven rows up from him, he saw a race car driver fire that bottle, an act that seemed to incentivize others to gleefully join in. As the glass rained down, the orderly rows of spectators had to make their decision to either turn and flee or join the riot. The race driver who threw that first bottle was Maury Rose, He was 25 years old at the time and would only have been known to other local race fans, but Rose would go on to win the Indianapolis 500 not once, not twice, but three times as one of the winningest drivers in Indy 500 history. And there he was that day in 1931, a young hothead hoping to incite a riot. Robert Schroeder, in his 1994 interview, shared more details about that night. He recalled watching the crews frantically trying to ram their racers onto trailers because the crazed crowd was threatening to turn them over and burn them too. It was at this point Robert recalled his father finding him, grabbing him, and hurrying him off. Robert said, Dad was now afraid the rioters would track the owners to their homes in town, and so he drove my mother, my sisters, and me around neighboring towns until long after dark, when finally we ventured home. Our house had not been molested, nor had the other owners. And most of all, I was shocked at seeing ordinarily meek, compliant townspeople embrace the madness of mob frenzy, only to return unabashed to their meekness and mildness the following day. Law enforcement might have been overwhelmed the night of the riot, but they weren't going to let it go. As the crowd dispersed, deputies chased arsonists that they had spotted as they peeled out of the speedway. They followed some as far as New Knoxville, some seven miles away, but couldn't catch them that night. Two days after the riot, the owners announced they would rebuild the speedway. Damage was estimated at $15,000. The owners were only insured for 4000 but they were determined to bring the place back to life. 
Meanwhile, the sheriff collected the names of some 30 people suspected of being ringleaders at the affair and turned them over to the state fire marshals. A grand jury met and investigators started collecting evidence. In the end, prosecutors went after four men. Maury Rose was living on Long Street in Dayton when officials arrived to arrest him and charge him with arson. William Wolfe, a 24-year-old race driver known as Shorty, was picked up at his repair shop in Columbus and charged with inciting a riot. A man named Pete Bredemeyer of Sydney, Ohio, and Hugo Merkel, a baker from Wapakoneta, were arrested as well. All of them pled not guilty, and the legal process stretched out for a couple of months, but in the end, they all struck deals for reduced charges of malicious destruction of property. Maury Rose and Pete Brademeyer were fined 175 William Wolfe paid a $75 fine, and Hugo Merkel coughed up $50. By the way, a special thank you to Bill, an Ohio Mysteries listener who called our attention to that recent New Bremen Historical Society post about the racetrack. I'm quite sure we wouldn't have found this one on our own. So, thanks, Bill. Hugo Merkel, that baker. Oh, man. <laughs> that crazy baker. <laughs> but what about this uh, Marie Rose? Obviously, he was the most famous person to come out of this story. What do you know about him? Okay, well, although Mari was arrested at his home in Dayton, he was originally from Columbus. He was born there in 1906. And he won the Indy 500 in 1941, 1947, and 1948. He was the bookends to World War II. He won the last race before the series was postponed because of the war, and he won the second and third races that took place right after the war. But Maury had once said he thought his most important accomplishment was inventing a device that allowed amputees to drive automobiles. From all accounts, he had behavioral issues. I saw articles calling him a hothead, and he actually got fired from his Indy 500 team. I think it was the year after his last Indy win for not being a good team player. But there's no disputing his racing skills. About a decade ago, the Indy 500 held a poll to determine the greatest 33 drivers of all time. I don't know the significance of 33. Is that how many cars compete each year? I bet it is. Well, at the time the poll was held, there had been more than 700 drivers in Indy's history. A panel of sports writers narrowed their list to the top 100, and the fans were asked to vote for the top 33. Maury Rose easily made the cut. Also, some nifty trivia for you. Maury Rose played himself in Clark Gable's 1950 racing flick, To Please a Lady, which included scenes filmed during an actual race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. During that race, a pit fire engulfed Rose's car as it was being refueled. Rose calmly got out of the car, waited for the fire to be put out, climbed back in, and finished in third place. The filmmakers caught the whole thing and included footage of it in the film. I can't say that I've seen that movie before. I wonder if there's a clip online. I'll have to go look and see if I can find any videos. We'll get it up. Yeah, that'd be a great idea. 
That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist, the Joe Joyce Band, Joe Joyce Band, Joe Joyce Band, three times in a row, is an acoustic pop band from Illyria who describe themselves as a group of five friends playing and creating music together. As you know, the pandemic has been a tough year for musicians who weren't able to do what they love most, performing for fans. Joe Joyce and his buddies tried to make the most of the downtime by writing some new jams. And earlier this year, they released one of them, a song called Plans, about discovering your own purpose. For Joe personally, he said it was also about growing in his faith and surrendering his will to God. You can find that tune and others on the bandcamp.com site and follow them on Facebook to keep up with any future projects. Well, let's have another listen to Plants by the Joe Joyce Band, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Something to believe Cause this world's not long for me Or anything I need There's still something to be seen When I close my eyes and dream You're everything I need Something to behold Cause this life is not my own Don't wanna feel alone I sought something to behold And this world is not my home Don't have to be alone Things that I'd seek out Don't even come
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.